Hello and welcome. Today I want to focus on an aspect of the poet Samih al-Qasim, which I mentioned when introducing him, and that is his ethnic and religious background as a member of the Arabic-speaking Druze people. I'm not sure how religious he actually is or how much he believes, but this is an opportunity to learn about a side of Palestine and Palestinians that not many really think about or hear about. The discourse, the narratives, and the fact that many Palestinians happen to be Muslims overlooks other parts of Palestinian society, whether it's the Christian Catholics, Christian Orthodox, those of Armenian descent, and of course, the Druze people. When I introduced Samih al-Qasim, I mentioned how the Druze emerged from the mists of history in the Middle East about 1000 years ago, so the 11th century of the Common Era. For the sake of context, I'm going to briefly describe what the Middle East had experienced from the emergence of Islam in the 7th century up until that point, the 11th century. But if you want a detailed, excellent account of the history of Arabs as a people and Islam as a religion, then I highly recommend Tim McIntosh Smith's book, Arabs, a 3000 year history of peoples, tribes and empires. It covers the history of the Arab people from before the emergence of Islam, during it, and up to the current era. And it is quite a non-Islamic, dare I say, neutral look at the history of Islam, not just as a religion, but a cultural and political movement. Anyway, I digress. By the 11th century, Islam as a faith had already existed for about 400 years. When it first emerged in the 7th century, it was a political and social force that united the Arabs, who until that point were a mix of nomadic and settled peoples that, at most, served as client kings for the empires that came and went, be it the Assyrians, the Persian dynasties, such as the Sassanids and Byzantium. But with the power of this faith, Islam, in a little over 100 years, it had expanded from Arabia to the northern parts of the Middle East and up to Turkey and even parts of Armenia. It had gone west through North Africa, as far as Morocco and Spain, even as far as Poitiers in France. It also travelled east through Persia, so modern-day Iran, into the Khorasan, modern-day Afghanistan, parts of Central Asia and Sindh, which I believe would be a part of modern-day Pakistan. On the one hand, you had these internal bloodshed, division, and infighting from the very beginning of this period, and this included a schism with a religious nature between Sunni and Shia that we still see manifesting in the politics of today. There were multiple claims to power over the Islamic Ummah or nation, and different Islamic caliphates, so dynasties, would vie for this power, but there was also a more positive side to it, if you want to call it that, and that is referred to as the Golden Age. The Golden Age was characterized by one of knowledge, the Umayyad Caliphate, who moved the center of power to Damascus, were known for gathering literary works from all over the known world, including that of ancient Greek philosophy and the natural sciences. They built a grand library called Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom. The Abbasid Caliphate, which came after them and in a sense overthrew them, was in the mid-8th century. They founded Baghdad and ruled from there, and made their own house of wisdom there, and they began to translate many such works into Arabic, 
be it medical works by Galen and Hippocrates, historical works by Ptolemy, or philosophy by Plato and Aristotle. Translators and scholars were earning a good wage and gaining high status among the people. But if Baghdad was this project of scientific knowledge and translation for the caliphs of the time, then the southern Iraqi cities of Kufa and Basra were the centres of religious debate. Macintosh Smith, the author that I mentioned earlier, imaginatively used the analogy of Oxbridge, the prestigious universities of Oxford and Cambridge in England, or Harvard and Yale in the USA, to describe their prestige and importance in relation to Islamic scholarship of the time. A Syrian literary critic and writer, known by his pen name as Adonis, wrote the following in his book, Al Thabit wal Mutahawil, which means the static and the dynamic. The most important stage of Arab intellectual growth was in the Abbasid period. It was then that most of the questions were posed that are still posed today. Debate was marked by such extraordinary fearlessness that even heretics were able to put forward their views. Today, we dare not pose the smallest fraction of the questions some of our forebears asked, and in this sense, we have regressed from those times. And this is why I can't help but smile to myself when people suggest that certain acts or opinions by certain Muslims today are so outdated or outrageous that they belong in medieval times or the Middle Ages. Societies and religions are not always marching forward under a banner of progression. Disasters can cause collapse and regression. Apart from the flourishing and mixing of ideas, you also had the people, and you can never really forget the people. The Islamic caliphates, given their collective size and how they bridged Europe and Far East Asia on the Silk Roads, were very diverse. The Persians, though now Muslims, preserved their own language and many of their traditions. But you also have the old-school Arab Bedouins, the Nejdis from Central Arabia, the Nabati Mesopotamian peasants, the Turks of Central Asia, the Sindhis of the Indus Valley, and the Jat Indians. Some of this diversity is owed to the practice of slavery. There were the black Zanji people who were brought over from Africa to work in the palm groves of Mesopotamia. At one point, they would stage their own rebellion. The Abbasid caliphs themselves, who claimed descent from one of these old-school Arab power brokers and merchants of Mecca, would be part Persian owing to the fact that they were born of Persian concubines. They would even acknowledge and introduce Persian practices to their royal court, such as sitting behind a screen or a sheet when speaking to subjects. The latter Abbasid caliphs had a habit of employing slave soldiers from the Turkic regions, powerful warriors, proficient horse riders, sharp-eyed archers, and the slave soldiers would become caliphs and kings in their own right, founding their own dynasties, such as the Seljuks and the Mamluks. The other side of this coin is Islam's nature as a proselytizing faith, that is, in theory, accepting of everyone regardless of race or colour. As mastery of Arabic and therefore of the Quran is of utmost importance, there would be many scholars and authors who would not actually be ethnically, in quotation marks, Arabs, but rather Arabized or Arab by tongue. Persia produced a lot of such people, so you had this clash of Islam being this more 
open, accepting idea, for anyone willing to believe at least, and this snobbery and arrogance and self-importance of what I like to call the old school Arabs who still cared about things like lineage, good breeding, and so on, and who still uh, openly practiced slavery. Ultimately, the point that I'm trying to make is that the Middle East was truly a melting pot, and it is within this melting pot, towards the decline, admittedly, that the Druze faith emerged. In the year 1014 of the Common Era, an Islamic scholar and mystic of the Shia Ismaili variety, known as Hamza ibn Ali ibn Ahmad, who hailed from the Khurasan, came to Cairo and assembled a team of scholars from a variety of backgrounds to meet and discuss the nature of religion. And these meetings, known as Sessions of Wisdom, would be secret at first, taking place in a simple mosque. The rulers of Egypt and North Africa at this time were the Fatimid Caliphate, rival to the Abbasids based in Iraq. They first emerged in the 9th century in Tunisia, and they claimed descent from Fatima, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, hence the name. At their peak, they expanded from Tunisia and Egypt across the Sinai and went north into Palestine and the Levant, as well as south across the western coast of Arabia. The Caliph of the Fatimids at the time, Al-Hakim bi Amrullah, or Al-Hakim for short, would play an instrumental role in the early history of the Druze. It's not surprising in the end, for the Fatimids were known for being mostly relaxed about religion. When Macintosh Smith compares them to the other caliphates of the time, this is how he describes them. For a time, it seemed as if the Fatimids were easily the most active of them. Having secured comfortable, innovating Egypt, however, Fatimid forward policy flagged. They degenerated into a dynasty of dilettantes, variously into books, gemstones, alcohol, racing pigeons, weird alternative medicine, unorthodox sex, and downright sadism. The business of everyday rule they left to a succession of viziers of varied ethnic origin. In sectarian matters, although themselves Ismaili Shias, they were rarely rigorous, letting the Sunni majority get on with their lives. The laid-back attitude extended to those of other faiths. One of their viziers, for example, was an Armenian who doubled as commander-in-chief and as a result sported the traditional title, though he was a Christian, of Saif al-Islam, the Sword of Islam. It is not surprising then that the religion that was slowly being formed by this mystic, Hamza ibn Ali, and his team of scholars would reflect the melting pot of peoples and ideas at the time. In its final form, it would incorporate elements of Greek philosophy like those of Plato, Aristotle and Pythagoras. It would also incorporate elements of other religions, such as Christianity, Zoroastrianism, a religion of Persia, Buddhism and Hinduism. It would not be Islam and not define itself as an Islamic faith, although there are debates around that. Unitarianism, their strict belief in one divine power, was and is at their centre. The Rasa'il al-Hikmah, the Epistles of Wisdom, is their sacred text. Some of it consists of these recorded debates between these scholars and thinkers during their secret meetings, their sessions of wisdom. One such debate was when another adherent to the fledgling religion, Muhammad al-Darazi, argued that God manifested in certain rulers 
who descended from the Prophet Muhammad and tried to give himself the title of Sword of the Faith. Hamza ibn Ali accused him of arrogance and pointed out that faith does not need a sword to aid it. Now, it goes without saying that if you have a bunch of intellectuals, thinkers, scholars, and spiritualists uh, debating, you are bound to get disagreements. From my understanding, and this is something I only recently looked into, this Muhammad al-Darazi would break off from the main group. He and his followers, so-called Darazites, would be pariahs and considered heretics by this new fledgling Druze religion. One theory on the origin of the name Druze is that it was based on Ad-Darazi and his followers as a derogatory term against all members of this emerging religion. It would be a little like calling Christians Judah. <clears throat> in any case, Hamza ibn Ali would continue with his project. In the year 1018, he would approach the Fatimid Caliph, Al-Hakim bi-Amrullah, and make the religion public. The Caliph would make a stunning proclamation upon hearing this. Remove the causes of fear and estrangement from yourselves. Do away with the corruption of delusion and conformity. Be certain that the Prince of Believers has given unto you free will and has spared you the trouble of disguising and concealing your true beliefs so that you may keep your deeds pure for God. He has done this so that when you relinquish your previous beliefs and doctrines, you shall not lean on such causes of impediments and pretensions. By conveying to you the reality of his intention, the Prince of Believers has spared you any excuse for doing so. He has urged you to declare your belief openly. You are now safe from any hand which may bring harm to you. You may find rest in his assurance that you shall not be wronged. Now this marked what is called in Arabic as Dawat al-Tawheed or the Unitarian Call. In other words, the club was public and open for new members. Adherents of the faith would go around the caliphate, including the Levant, and proselytize and call people to this new and developing religion. But, in the year 1021, the open-minded progressive caliph al-Hakim just disappears. It could have been assassination, there could have been a genuine accident of some sort, but the important thing was that power was seized by his sister, Sit al-Mulk, who acted as regent over his son, Al-Zahir. Now what happens next is what makes hereditary power so chaotic, just like the roll of a dice. The Fatimid Caliphate slid back into orthodoxy. The Druze, who were openly accepted, were now persecuted. Hamza ibn Ali, the man who started all of this, fled to Mecca, where he was executed as a heretic. The person who inherited the mantle then was Baha al-Din al-Muqtana, whose writings show the Druze missionary effort before its persecution had spread throughout the Fatimid Caliphate. But with him and his travels, it concentrated itself in Palestine and the rest of the Levant. It reverted to secrecy for a time before daring to make itself more public again until the year 1043, when Baha al-Din formally closed this divine or Unitarian call. This club was not accepting any new members. Past that point, the only way to be Druze was to be born to Druze parents. Over the years, as those of the Druze faith coalesced into their own little societies and intermarried, they would become this ethno-religious group of their own. They would remain as Arabic speakers and be considered Arabs in that sense. 
but as is the fate of any minority, they would be haunted by waves of persecution of whoever happened to rule over them. Some Islamic scholars would argue that while they would not qualify as people of the scripture, that being the Jews and Christians, their monotheistic belief meant that they should really be accepted and tolerated. More orthodox, dogmatic scholars, such as the divisive but influential Ibn Taymiyyah, would argue that they are apostates by descent, that they are to be driven out and killed wherever they are found, and their women are to be enslaved. Even today, with the civil war in Syria, they had faced attacks and killings by extremists and radicals who call themselves rebels. A lot of their beliefs about the nature of God and Unitarianism are quite philosophical in nature, relating to the very concept of divinity and the idea of divinity having attributes. There is also a great amount of what is called esotericism or esoteric thought, the belief in hidden or higher meanings that can be found in the teachings of the prophets throughout time and even within other faiths. These esoteric meanings, termed al-Batin in Arabic, are usually laid under the exoteric, which is termed al-Zahir, the easily apparent and literal that can be understood by any layman. But even below the hidden esoteric, there is an even deeper layer of meaning that only the truly enlightened will be able to understand. The following example of how esoteric thinking works is purely of my own speculation, but it is just to give you an idea. If we consider the Islamic account of God creating the first human and the fall of the devil from grace, on the surface it is quite a fantastical and epic tale. We are told that God announces to his angels that he will create a successor upon the earth, by which he means humanity. His angels, who have no free will but are apparently free to speak their minds, warn God, saying that these beings shall sow corruption upon the land and spill the blood of the innocent. God's response is a cryptic declaration. I know what you do not know. So when Adam is created, God commands his angels to bow down before his creation. And yet, a being who lives among them, a creation of God that is not an angel, but who has free will, refuses. When God demands to know why, this spirit claims that he is superior to these humans, these humans who are created from clay and mud, while he, this mysterious spirit, was created from a smokeless, searing flame. For this arrogance, God casts the spirit down from the heavens. The spirit vows to do everything in his power to lead humanity astray and to deceive them. In return, God damns the spirit to hell when the day of judgment finally arrives, and in so doing, curses the spirit to live out his immortality in a state of constant despair. And so we have the devil, who is given the appropriate name of Iblis, which I am told means the despairing one, coming from the Arabic word Belasa. Taken literally, this story might explain why the devil wants to tempt us. It may teach us to fear this devil. But esoterically, there are underlying principles or values that we see, such as that humbleness is a virtue and arrogance is a sin that could lead us to despair. 
But then there could even be deeper questions or meanings that we could search for that go beyond the esoteric, such as the angels and their response. How did they know what humanity would become? And what does God know that the angels do not regarding the destiny of humanity? This is very open-ended and perhaps for the enlightened to figure out. As the Druze faith was born in an Islamic society, they still do bear some similarities, the most notable of which is their avoidance of iconography. They have a scholarly or a priest class, if you will, known as the Huqal, or those who know, but the majority of those within their society are classed as the Juhal, or those who are ignorant. Among their seven precepts, which would be similar to the Ten Commandments or even the Five Pillars of Islam, are values such as the speaking of the truth in aiding the brothers and sisters in faith. The most interesting of them to me is rejection of the devil and the forces of evil. The Arabic word for evil in this case, I am told, is turyan, meaning despotism, and this is how it's often translated. Islam has a very similar usage where the original word al-tariya means tyranny, or in the very literal sense, to go beyond a measure or a limit or to overstep a boundary. The related word tarut is connected to the idea of pagan blood sacrifices to attract demons or the worship of idols, something that is fiercely opposed in both Islam and the Druze faith, given its Unitarianism. But for now, we come to Samih al-Qasim. I've already mentioned that I do not know the extent of his religiosity, but the following poem titled Al-Dawratul Bahida, or The Boring Orbit, has this esoteric element to it that I can't help but feel was influenced by his Druze background. As with other poems I have looked at recently, this translation will be based off of the anthology Victims of a Map, with my own touch. And now for the poem. My daughter, who was not yet born and whose name was Hagar, asked me, Why does the earth go round, father? And I said, Early one morning, God woke up, and the angel Gabriel brought him his morning coffee. One sugar, please. And God stirred the sugar with his golden spoon in dull, empty circles, dull circles, dull, empty circles. And since that time, my child, the earth's been rotating in its boring orbit. Now, this is quite a very short and simple one, but there are quite a few things of interest that I want to point out. The first is this hypothetical daughter that Samih al-Qasim calls Hagar, or in Arabic, Hajar. Hagar is this biblical figure who was also part of the Arabian mythology. I'm sure those of you who have read and know the Bible would be familiar, but the story is that she was an Egyptian and the slave of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And as Sarah was unable to bear children, Hagar acted as a concubine and surrogate. Some scholars disagree and believe that Hagar was an Egyptian princess and therefore could not have been a concubine or a bondswoman but maybe a second wife. In any case, she would bear Ishmael, who would, in the Arabian mythology, become the father of the Arabs. Sarah, through a miracle of God, bears her own son, Isaac, who would become the father of the Hebrews. And as tensions arise between the two women and their children, 
Sarah convinces Abraham to cast out Hagar and her son Ishmael. They, who are cast out, stop at what is now Mecca, but what was then this barren, empty place. God reveals a water well to Hagar and her son Ishmael. Ishmael helps to rebuild a temple that was originally constructed, as myth would tell us, by Adam, the first human, and then reconstructed by his father Abraham in dedication to God. This temple would be the Kaaba, which uh, would then be converted to idol worship by the Arabians over time until it reverts to its former monotheistic glory in the Islamic period. This little bit of myth or legend, as the historian Macintosh Smith describes, is like a grafting of the Arab people onto the wider Abrahamic tradition. And this is why the Arabs, a Semitic people with a Semitic language, are considered cousins of the Jews. The real manifestation of how related they are, though, is through the similarity of their languages. I don't know how intentional this was for Al-Qasim, but Hagar and her son would be like this nexus that bridges many different worlds and traditions, especially when it comes to Islam as an Abrahamic religion. The next point I want to make is about the analogy that Al-Qasim uses. Anthropomorphizing, or basically humanizing something like God, can get one into all kinds of trouble when it comes to the dogmatic and orthodox approaches to faith, especially if you stray from the doctrine and the accepted path. But Al-Qasim's non-conventional ways, which could be down to his Druze esoteric background, might also equally come from his background as a poet and intellectual. After all, I previously mentioned how Mahmoud Darwish, who came from a Sunni Muslim family, had his books banned in Saudi Arabia for alleged blasphemy. And poets always seem to be this exception to the rule, or these outliers compared to the societies that they are from. The image of God setting things into motion by stirring the morning coffee with his golden spoon actually reminds me of Aristotle's view of God or the divine as the prime mover or what he might call the unmoved mover. Now to be clear, Aristotle was not envisioning a human-like God in the heavens putting sugar in his coffee, or as some atheists like to simplify, a so-called sky fairy, in quotes, with a big grey beard. Nor was he, as a Greek man, envisioning a Zeus-like figure of a god. From what I understand, God is seen more as a force that began all other things, this being that is perfect, beautiful, eternal, and all-enduring from a conceptual point of view, and who is the source of all movement that itself is not moved. But this raises up a question. If the stirring of the coffee can mean so much, then does the coffee itself, or the golden spoon, or even the sugar, have any other meaning? And this is the uh, wonderful thing about the idea of esotericism and esoteric thought when it comes to religions. It kind of becomes a little bit open, and we are free to kind of contemplate and speculate on these meanings. But maybe I will leave you to think about it. In any case, thank you for listening, and until next time.